Welcome to Getting Unschooled. I'm Christopher Lolly. I'm super excited to be launching this podcast today, as it's been a long time coming for me. This is a project that's very close to my heart. I've been working on this for many years now to find a way to support myself, my colleagues, and other folks in the teaching profession to take care of ourselves and to get what we need in order to stay well and sustainable and energized so our passion can flow through our teaching. This podcast is a very exciting manifestation of that process, and I look forward to sharing my own journey with you as we progress through the season. For today, I'll just briefly answer the question why the podcast is entitled Getting Unschooled. This title speaks to my experience in trying to figure out how to be well and energized in order to have the impact I want to have on my students and my community. A huge part of that journey to stay well and energized and connected with that passion was really coming to understand the limits of my own influence and to disentangle what parts of my experience were mine and what parts were the schooling system. The first years of my career in particular, I really struggled to feel like I was having a meaningful impact when I looked at all the ways in which my students were not having their needs met. I realized in retrospect that I had internalized those shortcomings and looked at them as my own failings, and really the process of healing for me was coming back to teaching in a way that was more imbued with a sense of agency over my career and over my life in general. It was about coming to grips with looking at what the systemic failings or shortcomings were the things that are well outside my control, that are impacting my students' experience of school, and looking at how I could tease those apart and not internalize them any longer. So that's the genesis of my desire to do this work, and it has manifested in telling teachers' stories. And I really have come to realize with the help of others that while wellness is key and has been how I've been articulating it, really, in the end, this is about finding out who we are as teachers, finding out who we are as educators, and figuring out how we can have the impact we want to have. Many of us enter teaching with a sense of what we want to do, and then we come up against systemic or institutional barriers that can be very discouraging. And it is an individual journey to find our way and find our place and to figure out how we can have an impact that's meaningful to us. And sometimes that's the impact that we set out to have when we started, and sometimes it evolves based on what our experience is in the classroom. So that's just a short introduction as to why this project is so important to me and why I feel it's so meaningful and important to share our stories and to support each other. Now, putting that aside, the stories of the people that we're going to be talking with are amazing on their own. You don't have to understand them through the lens that I've approached this with. Basically, we have an amazing group of dedicated and passionate, self-reflective and articulate educators who are sharing their stories. We've already recorded five interviews over the past year, and now that we're launching, I'll be recording on a more regular basis. I really couldn't be more grateful to these five individuals for their generosity in sharing their stories. I'm really excited to help bring these into the world so that you can hear them. I think you'll be touched by them and hopefully see yourself reflected in their journeys. Today, we're going to start with the first interview, which is from exactly a year ago. Kim Snyder is a teacher in Toronto and just a really dynamic, generous, generous individual. Before we start, I just want to say thank you to her for being the first guest and for connecting me with two other teachers who I have already interviewed and who you will be hearing in subsequent episodes. I'm really grateful for that support, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing about all their journeys. And so without further ado, let's talk to Kim. So today we are going to be talking to Kim Snyder. 
Kim has been a drama and English teacher at Rosedale Heights School of the Arts in Toronto for almost two decades. And she's passionate about diversity and social justice issues. And during her time at the school, she's actually extended from being a drama and English teacher. She's moved into also teaching gender studies. And 30% of that school is LGBTQ. And so that has a lot of importance to her as well. She was the recipient of the 2005 Beginning Teacher Award from OTIP. She is a curriculum writer and has worked as a workshop facilitator in Canada and in seven other countries in Europe, East Asia, and Oceania. She's also an avid traveler. I'm sure we'll get into that today. And she's partaken in two four over five years, one in which she completed her master's degree and then took an extended leave to travel to 18 countries around the world. And her second four over five, she's just completed. So she'll be heading back to the classroom very shortly. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd start off with this is really the podcast's vision is really around looking at Obviously, for many of us, we get into the school system hoping to make a difference and change, you know, impact the system in some way and certainly impact lives. And at the same time, big institutions tend to also have their impact on us. And I know for me, a, a large part of my career was getting conscious about how that was happening and then starting to see how I could start to untangle the parts that were me and the parts that weren't me. And so the podcast is entitled Getting Unschooled for that reason, mm-hmm. to kind of explore people's experiences of getting to really connect with who they are as individuals and as teachers so that they can have the impact that they want to have and what that journey has been like. So to start, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who you are or who you've become as a teacher. How have you come to know yourself as a teacher? Well, it's funny because I think I'm one of those people who, you know, some people discover teaching later on in their life or realize they want to be teachers later in life. But for me, it's the only job I've ever wanted. So for me, I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was very young, like about three or four years old, I was talking about becoming a teacher. And so I did, like, for me, it's very much a vocation and and it really hasn't disappointed me. It's It's kind of everything that I dreamed it would be. But I think even though I love the job and even though I think I'm meant to be a classroom teacher, because I entered teaching straight out of school myself, it wasn't until I was 35 that I kind of began to feel burnt out as a teacher and recognized that my my identity was so tied up in being a teacher that I didn't actually really have a sense of my own identity apart from that. So I didn't actually leave school until I was 35 on my first sabbatical. And that was a real eye opener for me in starting to carve out some space for myself apart from my job, because my identity was was very much wrapped up in being a teacher. Yeah. So you had some kind of an awakening during that. Was that your first four over five? Yeah. And it kind of came about because, I mean, I was certainly tired and feeling uninspired at school, but I was actually at a party or social get together and someone asked me what my hobbies were. And I said, well, is teaching a hobby? Because that's what I think about. And that's what I talk about. And that's what I do. And they said, no, Kim, that's your job. And then I kind of went, oh, wow, I really don't like my my life really has become consumed by teaching. And yeah, that was my four over five. But then Of course, when I took my four over five, I decided to go back to school and do my master's. So I actually did a year of traveling after that. And that was the first time. So I was 36. That was the first time I'd been out of school since I was four. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. What was that like? I mean, when you love what you do, it's harder to see that that's all you're doing. What was it like to Absolutely. to kind of have this yeah. other part of yourself being fed? It was amazing. And traveling for me was so like it was schooling of a different kind. I think that's what I realized, you know, after that year of traveling, I, I felt like I had earned another master's degree in travel because I was learning about history. I was learning about gender. I was learning about culture. I was learning about religion as I traveled. And so it was I was still learning but in a totally different way. And I kept a blog, like a travel blog while I was traveling. And I remember I wrote one post about how travel would change me as a teacher, how I realized it would change me as a teacher. And so it really did. It it changed the way I taught when I returned to school. And I think that still, it still has uh, changed the way that I teach. And I think this year off has changed the way I'll teach as well in a lot of really profound ways. Yeah, it's funny because I guess as teachers, we sometimes can think or probably people who aren't teachers might have the idea that it's just an understanding of a curriculum or even some particular pedagogy or skill set. And really uh, what makes us who we are as teachers is who we are as people, right? Yeah. And traveling, because I traveled to uh, less developed countries, probably one of the biggest ways that it changed me as a teacher is it made me recognize my privilege in a lot of ways that I hadn't before, including my privilege as a teacher. You know, I think I think when you're a teacher and you work in challenging conditions, it's really easy to become jaded or pessimistic about, about the school system, about working conditions, about things like that. But then to see school systems in other countries and see what they're grappling with, like, for instance, no other school system that I encountered in my teaching offers a four over five sabbatical plan. So even the fact that I was able to take time off from my job and return to my job was huge or the fact that I I get paid well or have benefits or, you know, am am part of a union. Like all of those things were, I took for granted until, you know, I went to Cambodia and found out that teachers in Cambodia make $50 US a month. Right. So that really changed the way I saw my job when I returned home. And it, it didn't make me apolitical, but I do find when I'm faced with challenges in school here, I also have to keep reminding myself of all the ways that I'm very fortunate to be a teacher in Ontario. Yeah, for sure. That perspective is super important. I'd probably mm-hmm. as, as a private citizen too, right? Like um, understanding yeah. that. And the, and the way I talk to my students, like, you know, I remind my students of their privilege being able to go to school. You know, they love to get mired down in like, oh, this assignment and this thing, and I have to get up in the morning and get to school. And then I you know, I tell them about some of the countries I've been to where students have to pay to go to school or can't go to school because of war or a natural disaster that's happened. And it makes them feel quite guilty at first, but I think it's also good for them to to understand how lucky they are that they get to be part of a of a good publicly funded education system. Yeah, absolutely. And has that perspective changed how you approach or respond to challenges or frustrations in the in the system now? Yeah, I mean, I think the longer I'm I'm back in it, the more I start to become maybe a bit more navel gazy and certainly with recent changes here in Ontario, it's easy to get caught up in all the the things that are happening, but I think that, you know, my principal always says you know, despite all of the things that are going on and all of the challenges that we face and all of the changes, at the end of the day, you go into your classroom and you close the door and you do you do what you do with kids. And, and I think that's very true. And, 
you know, a, a mentor and friend recently said to me that there probably hasn't been a more important time to be a classroom teacher with students right now at this particular point. Like they, I think they need us so much. They need good teachers more than ever. And so I, I try to keep that like a, as frustrating or as challenging as it can be. I know that once I go back into my classroom, I can do what I do. And I'm, I'm lucky to be in a school where I'm, I'm trusted and respected to do what I do. And so I can kind of let some of that fall away for at least a little while. Yeah, well, and it, it sounds as though you have some people who are really supporting you in key places. Would you say that's been your experience in general in your career, like around administration, mentors, etc.? Absolutely. I've been very lucky in that respect to have landed at a school where I had mentors. When I first started teaching at Rosedale, one of my vice principals was my former drama teacher, Jane Deluzio. And so she's been a mentor to me. And certainly Wendy, your mom, who was also my drama teacher in high school, was a big mentor to me. I think because I always wanted to be a teacher and always express that to my teachers, I had people mentoring me and giving me teaching advice when I was a student. And I think I always sort of experience school with this sort of double vision of like learning content but also watching the way my teachers taught and my professors and kind of deciding like oh I really like how they do that or I don't think I would do it that way and so I, I feel like I, I had that mentorship all along and then I think when I started teaching I certainly sought out a community of teachers and mentors because teaching can be very isolating like it's a funny job you work with other teachers but actually you don't because they don't see you do your job and you don't see them do your job unless you invite each other in so while you might talk a lot about teaching ultimately teaching is something that's between you and a bunch of students and so finding good colleagues and mentors is it's not easy but uh, i've been lucky enough to do it yeah, it's funny. It's kind of this gravity of, of the world kind of pulls us in. I was at a party a couple of weeks ago and the one other teacher and I found each other and we were chatting in the kitchen <laughs> and we were both joking about as we tried to pull off into other topics, we joked openly, you know, consciously and still it was hard to get away from it. It's true. And, you know, one of my colleagues made fun of me the other day and said, oh, Kim, but all your friends are teachers. You know, and he actively cultivates groups of friends who aren't teachers. And I think that's good, too. And I do have some friends who aren't teachers and my partner's not a teacher. And I think that's healthy, too, is I certainly earlier on in my career, I would debrief a lot to him because I needed to. I would come home every day and like walk him through every moment of my day. And as I've become more experienced, I leave more and more of that at school and bring less of it home. But yeah, when I go out with my teacher friends, it's very easy to lapse into that conversation because you want to throw ideas around, you want their perspective, you want tips and tricks. So yeah, I think teachers do gravitate towards each other and teacher talk is, it's a hard thing to turn off, really. Yeah, and it's such a unique experience that feeling understood is... Yeah. yeah. So actually, I, I was kind of curious. I remember when you won the the OTIP award, you know, our, our careers, actually, we probably started around the same time. And so yeah. I kind of have always had this fascination around the idea of the super teacher, you know, and, and <laughs> the mythology that can kind of spring up. I've often grappled with, I guess, not having had, you know, firsthand experience of those awards, you know, whether or not it does it reinforce these kind of unhealthy attitudes to work, or whether it's just a really great thing to recognize dedicated and talented teachers to help us all kind of keep our eye on what we're supposed to be on about? Yeah, I have complicated feelings about it too. I mean, certainly it was 
it was lovely to be recognized. And in a lot of ways, teachers don't get recognized in many different ways. Like a lot of what teachers do kind of happens quietly in the shadows and um, things like that. And I, I think it was uh, it was certainly gratifying. But it's interesting because it was a beginning teacher award. It was for someone in their first five years of teaching. And I actually think that the somewhat dangerous thing is being recognized for something like that early on in your career, because I think it, you know, there's a bit of like this, like wonderkind, you know, phenomenon. And, and I was really young when I started teaching and I, I got hired in a time where a lot of new teachers were being hired and, you know, we were warned we wouldn't have a lot of mentors and we would move up the ranks really fast. And that was true. I, you know, I was a department head by my fourth year teaching and I, I was department head of a department where a lot of people had more experience than me, but I was lucky in that my colleagues were very supportive and, and good to me. And, you know, there wasn't jealousy or things like that. They were really happy for me, but I think that being recognized young did cert a, it set a certain expectation that I was always going to have to be a good teacher or that I was always perceived as a good teacher. And I have a um, I have a memory of like maybe a couple years later, I was administering the literacy test at our school and I made a mistake when I was administering the test and it caused like a bit of a kerfuffle and we had to like reorganize things and and it it sent me into an absolute panic attack, the fact that I had made this huge error. And I remember there being a lot of jokes in the school office of like, who's the person that you would think would be least likely to make a mistake like this? Well, it was Kim, ha ha ha, right? And, and I thought like, oh wow, I have this image I'm supposed to live up to of like this person who always does a good job, you know, and I'm fallible like anyone else. So I think it, it took a little while for me to understand that like, you know, it's nice to be congratulated, be known as a good teacher, but then you it, it can cause you to put some pressure on yourself to always pull things off. And the reality is when you're a teacher, you can't always pull everything off. You just can't. You're a human being like anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And was that something that you were able to kind of untangle yourself from over time or did it take the kind of reflective time you got when you took your sabbatical? Yeah, I mean, I think over time I've become okay with the idea of of not being not always being, you know, perfect. And I think I think that actually doing my master's too really underlined the importance of being a reflective practitioner. And like when I was doing my master's, I was doing research in the UK with a teacher, this teacher Matthew Redmond, who's become a good friend of mine, who's just a phenomenal educator. And to watch him, you know, even as good as he was to to watch him constantly thinking about how could I have done that differently? Maybe I should do it like this. I could do it better, not in a critical way, but in a, like an actively reflective way. To me, I thought, oh, that's what good teachers do. Like good teachers, it's not that they don't make mistakes. It's that when they make a mistake, they think about why that mistake happened and reflect on what could work differently. And so I'm lucky that I, I work with really great colleagues and we, we reflect with each other a lot. So if something doesn't work, I'll often tell my colleague Stephen and he'll, you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk through it and then we'll say, okay, well, what if you tried this? And then one of us might go back and try it a different way and let the other one know what happened. So for me, it's probably more about that and I think also I recognize like with the the labor of teaching, you know, I teach six classes a year. Not all of my classes are going to be stellar. Like I'm going to have good days and bad days and some courses are going to be fantastic and some of them 
will be good, but maybe not, not great. And so I'm okay with that now. Yeah, you have to be or else you're not going to have a very long career. Yeah, you'll burn out, I think, if you try to make everything perfect. And I, I think also teachers understand that it's uh, as well prepared as you can be. It's really about what happens in the moment and being able to cope with and improvise with things that happen. And I've become a lot better at that. I think when I first started teaching, I was extremely rigid. I planned within like an inch of my life. And when things didn't go according to plan, I often panicked. And it, it was it was a gradual learning process and how to work with those curveballs. In my first year teaching, I used to end I had one class that I would plan and it would always, my lesson would end five minutes before the bell. And I would just look at them like a deer caught in the headlights. Like, what on earth am I going to do for these last five minutes? I have nothing planned. And they would all stare at me. And then gradually I would just engage them in conversation. And we'd just chat. But I remember at first being really thrown by that. Like, what do you do when you have five extra minutes and you have nothing planned? That was hard. Yeah. What does it mean to be spontaneous and interact as a spontaneous human being with these people? Absolutely. Yeah, that was really hard for me. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? it I've you know, been thinking about teaching and how obviously for a number of years now trying to figure out how to reflect on it in a way that might be helpful to others. But anyway, the the thing that's kind of struck me has been that it's a profession that, I mean, maybe this is true for all professions, but I certainly feel like Teaching is a profession that draws us into the places where we need to heal, you know, mm. and we were, or, you know, a way of understanding healing is just to become whole or more whole. Yes. And so, you know, we're kind of faced w- with the places that where we, where we need to grow. And so in that w- sense, it's, a, it's fantastic. It's just, I guess, a question of how much growth is, ha- is happening at, at, at a given time. Yeah. And how much are you ready for? And when, when are you ready? And can you recognize it? Like that's the other thing is, can you recognize where you need to grow? And I think what's hard with teaching is people get tired. And then when change happens, like teaching is a profession that faces a lot of change. And so if you're tired or feeling burnt out or feeling overextended, when faced with that change or or the idea of having to do things differently, that's where teachers become resistant because they think I'm too tired to revamp this or to throw this out or to go through this process again. And so for me, taking sabbaticals has been good because I'm less tired and more able to like tackle those. And then I want to change. Whereas uh, I think, you know, for a teacher who's taught 30 years and never taken a break, I understand why it's hard for them to embrace change because they're not sure they have the energy for it anymore. Yeah, well said. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, it seems like your four over five experience has really been key. And I'm wondering whether it was just a really timely experience for you that allowed you to have the reflection and the insights that you got or whether it's something that kind of is now a part of the way you approach your practice? It, it absolutely is a part of the way I approach my practice. And I, uh, when I took the first one um, and I came back, I knew I was applying for a second. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make some, I am a person who likes to make goals and likes to think about, you know, what's happening in the future And for me, it was like, okay, I've got four years. Like, what do I want to do when I come back in these four years? And I knew I wanted to try teaching the gender studies course. I knew I wanted to direct a play. I knew I wanted to organize a school reunion. We'd never had a school reunion in the history of the school. And so those were my goals. And I did those. And then beyond that, I didn't know what 
my goals would be. And so it was nice because it was, it allowed me to kind of just focus. And I think for me, this second sabbatical has made me realize that work-life balance for me is not really achievable, like in a conventional sense. I'm not the kind of person who stops thinking about my job when the school day is done. And so for me, it's more about like working really hard for four or five years and then taking a really long break, like a sabbatical. And so I think that's something I'll continue to do because that's more achievable for me than leaving at 3.30 every day. Like that's that's probably never going to happen for me, but I can take a year off. And that's what I, I plan to keep doing, I think. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm kind of been playing with this idea of what I'm calling sustainable teaching, which is not particularly <laughs> imaginative term. But for me, at least at the moment, I see sustainable teaching, the formula being becoming super aware of what you need, and then yes. putting in place what you need in order to get that thing. And, and you know, it sounds really overly simple, but it sounds like that's what you've, you've come across. Yeah, I had a, it's interesting. I have a colleague who is also on a four over five and he and I got together for coffee a few months ago and he's a physicist and a spiritual guy as well. And we were talking and I said to him, you know, it's what I need is like a sabbatical one day a week. I just need like one day a week where I, I don't check my email and I don't plan for school and I don't talk about school. And he said, well, you know, scientific and spiritual thinking underlines that it's the reason why we have circadian rhythms and go to sleep. And it's the reason why we have a Sabbath. It's that idea of like just retreating from life for, for a little while and replenishing yourself. And I thought, okay, that's actually what I need. So that's my goal. You know, after this sabbatical, my goal for the year ahead is like a one day a week sabbatical. That's what I'm going to take. Wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my spiritual teachers, my uh, meditation teachers call that an integration day. Ah, yeah, that's what I'm going to call it. It's an integration day where I just like try as best I can to switch off and do something for myself or something that feeds myself in a different way that is not related to work. Awesome. Great. As we wrap up, I'm thinking it sounds like you have described your current growth edge or the next chapter in this journey for you. Is there anything that we that we haven't covered that you feel is important to say? Certainly, yeah. I mean, in terms of my sabbatical, that's been a big part. But I mean, I, I would also say too, like taking time off from work or taking time to, to to develop yourself apart from teaching, I think is really important. But I think also I have accepted in myself that a big part of me and what keeps me well is teaching. You know, I, I think I'm very happy when I'm teaching and I think I'm happy being around young people. And so for me, you know, I was teased early on in my career when I said something about teaching not feeling like a job to me, or I remember being quoted as saying once I would do this job for free, which people thought was hilarious and ridiculous. But I, I think that for me, because it's the right job for me, and I've never really doubted that, that it it also feeds me. So when I'm around my my students, I I think I, that does make me well. And and I remember my the teachers that I really admired in high school, like Wendy and like Jane, they often expressed how much they liked being around teenagers, like how much they enjoyed the presence of young people in their lives, talking to them and listening to their ideas and engaging with them. And that is very true for me too. And And actually being away from them for a year, I feel it, like I, I miss their presence. And so I know that for me, even though going back will be, you know, tiring and 
and challenging in some ways, I know that once I'm around that energy again, it will also make me feel better. So for me, it's recognizing that too. You know, that's being in a school environment makes me happy and makes me feel fulfilled. And so, you know, and I, I, I wish that all people had that in their work. You know, not everyone feels that way about their work, but I'm lucky that I do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm reminded of the expression, it's only work if you'd rather be doing something else. <laughs> right. Yeah. And often when I'm teaching, it doesn't feel like work, but I think that it's when I'm away from it or take a break that I recognize how wrapped up in it I am and how many hours. And and that's also hard for people to understand who aren't teachers. You know, teachers still get a really bad rap in lots of ways. I think in Ontario here, we're probably headed into a pretty difficult year in terms of, you know, potential job actions and things like that. And I think that's the other thing that's really hard about being a teacher is that you're working in service, you're caring for others, and then you kind of have to hear from these outside voices about how spoiled you are, or how much vacation you get, or how, you know, how easy your job is. And you know your job is not easy. And so trying to grapple with that. You know, I would say like teaching is a it's a kind of work that's so wrapped up with who you are as a person. And you're you can't divorce yourself from your teaching because it's something you you literally are doing with your whole being. And so when you're criticized or attacked, you really take it personally. It's it's pretty impossible not to take it personally. And so that can also wear teachers down is just like the negative talk about teachers. And it's really unfortunate that that continues to happen. And I think trying to distance yourself from that criticism can be hard when you're surrounded by it. So, yeah, I, I feel that. And I think we're probably headed into a time where more of that will be happening here, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. And so... In terms of addressing it, I mean, in some ways, what comes up for me is there's no way to make this not hard. I mean, it's a career that I think is the idea of finding a way to, it's always going to be hard and that's okay, right? As long as what's happening is what you've described around it being energizing overall, right? Yeah. I think a big part of it would be like if the powers that be could also understand that it's hard and it's messy, you know, like I think one of the things I've realized in traveling abroad and seeing different school systems is that there's like this global effort to like standardize and systematize teaching you know, through tests or inspections or, you know, all these accountability measures that are foisted upon schools and upon teachers. And I think what really rattles my cage about that is anyone engaged in teaching knows that it's it's a messy, messy business. You know, like you're dealing with human beings. You're not making machine parts. So to try to predict it or systematize it is really kind of useless because at the end of the day, it's going to be, it's a holistic kind of messy, chaotic way of working. And so I think it frustrates me that people don't recognize that. Anyone who's a parent should recognize that raising children is messy. So the same has to be true for teachers when we have 25 or 30 of them. So for me, I just wish there was kind of more more understanding of that, that what we do is is hard and it can't be, you know, it's not a factory and it shouldn't be treated like a factory and we shouldn't be treated like like factory workers. Yeah, well said. I can hear all the people nodding <laughs> who are listening to this. Um, well, Kim, thanks so much for taking time out of, especially, you know, the last days of your break before 
heading back to the classroom. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you and yeah. I wish you all the best in transitioning back into this next cycle of teaching for you. Thanks so much. Yeah, take care. Yeah, you too. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kim as much as I enjoyed having it. So much wisdom and food for thought. Thanks, Kim. If you found this episode to be meaningful or impactful to you, then you can support it by spreading the word through social media, emails, in your staff room. Tell people to check it out. You can also support this project on Patreon. By becoming a micro-patron, you'll help us expand our capacity to tell more of these stories. I'd like to end this first episode with some big thank yous. I'd like to thank Kim again for her generosity. I would like to thank my associate producer, Alexandra Tabler, for all of her support and work behind the scenes to help bring this show to life. I'd like to thank all the people who helped encourage me and gave me guidance to bring this project to fruition without which it would not have actually happened. This includes Leanne Bigwood, who although not involved in this project, was very encouraging and supportive of a previous iteration of this vision. Dave Carlgren for his coaching and helping me overcome feelings of imposter syndrome and helping me realize that these stories needed to be told and that I had the capacity to bring them into the world. All of the coaches that have worked with me to help me own what I have to offer and help me have faith and confidence in my vision. I'd like to thank my family for their support, as well as my spiritual teachers and community for their ceaseless encouragement and help with staying accountable, finding and staying true to that inner voice, and having complete faith in my ability to do this. Our wonderful theme music is by Gabriel Soto. I look forward to speaking to you next episode when we chat with teacher Todd McNamara about his personal journey and the process of becoming an advocate for his fellow teachers.